Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to 2 Timothy chapter 2. As was mentioned in the previous episode, 2 Timothy represents the farewell charge from the old apostle to the younger Timothy, who has been his frequent companion and whom he refers to as his son in the faith. It is a master class in Christian ministry, and chapter 2, which we enter today, is littered with valuable insights and necessary corrections for all people who would seek to serve the Lord in a faithful and fruitful manner. To be clear, this chapter of the Bible is to be read and treasured by all people, not merely those aspiring to vocational ministry. John Calvin, in his commentary on this chapter, says here, Paul's statement applies to everyone, but in particular to ministers of the word, closed quote. I think that's exactly right. The apostle is writing to all Christians in general and to ministers of the word in particular. Therefore, hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, this chapter begins with the word therefore in Greek. And therefore, we need to understand what follows as being intimately and logically connected to what precedes. In chapter 1, the apostle was encouraging his young protege to be resolved in his preaching of the gospel. Paul sees opposition coming, and thus he was attempting to buttress young Timothy in advance of the coming difficulties. And so, very much in line with that, Paul says now to Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Paul is directing this younger minister toward the fuel of the Christian ministry, which is, of course, the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We cannot rely merely on our own talents and gifts. This is ultimately a spiritual enterprise. And so the apostle tells Timothy to make sure that his tank is full of the fuel he will need to finish the race that is set before him. He wants him to grow in advance of the coming trial. There's an old saying, prepare the child for the road, not the road for the child. And that is precisely what Paul is doing here. He doesn't pray for an easier calling. He doesn't pray for a straighter road. Rather, he prays for a stronger man. He tells Timothy to grow up in his gospel graces. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's Christian ministry in a nutshell, isn't it? Stewardship and transmission. We are to guard the gospel from those who would seek to change it. And we are to pass it on to others who will be able to steward it and pass it on to others in their turn. As Christians, we're involved in the world's longest relay race. Therefore, we mustn't fumble the baton, and neither must we scatter into the stands at the first sign of trouble. Just keep running, keep handing off, and keep trusting that God will ensure the ultimate success of our venture. Now, most immediately, we are probably to understand this as a charge to Timothy to continue raising up gospel preaching and gospel stewarding 
pastors and elders. In 1 Timothy 5.17, Paul had said, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, and especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Paul understands that, humanly speaking, the health of a church depends upon the maintenance of a strong and faithful plurality of elders. A church that doesn't have that is on the fast track to disaster and death. And so we are right to understand Paul here speaking in that sense. He's saying, continue to recruit, train, and develop gospel preachers and stewards. That's the primary meaning of the text. And yet I think the encouragement can be taken in a more general sense as well. Paul has already spoken warmly of the gospel stewardship exercised by Timothy's mother and grandmother. So I think we're safe in saying that all Christians generally must be committed to this essential process. Parents must steward the gospel they have received and seek to pass it on to their children and to train them how to pass it on to their children. Every generation in the church faces this essential task to steward the gospel, to protect it from error and innovation, and to pass it on secure to the next generation that follows. This is the Christian commission in a nutshell. And it won't be easy, Paul tells Timothy, starting in verse 3, to steel himself to the likelihood of suffering. He makes use of three overlapping metaphors to paint a picture of the sort of ministry that will be required. He says, first of all, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. The emphasis here is on focus and resolve. George W. Knight III says helpfully, The operative verbs are entangle and please. The soldier does not become entangled in things that would be a hindrance to his single-minded dedication to follow gladly the commands of his leader. The implication is that Timothy should not let anything in his life distract him, Christ's soldier, from pleasing and following Christ, his commander, even though such a course involves suffering hardship, close quote. The second metaphor appears in verse 5. Paul says, An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. A soccer player who picked up the ball and ran it into the net would not be credited with a goal because that's not how soccer works. A baseball player who hits a home run with a corked bat will not only not be credited with an RBI, he may find himself suspended for several games. The point is simple. You have to work with the tools that are permitted and you have to compete within the rules that have been established if you want to receive your prize at the end. John Bunyan, in his book Of Antichrist and His Ruin, said, The church, therefore, as a church, must use such weapons as are proper to her as such. And the magistrate, as a magistrate, must use such weapons as are proper to him as such. Close quote. Bunyan was aware that in seasons of strength and in seasons of desperation, the church is often tempted to seize the sword out of Caesar's scabbard in order to expedite the growth or to protect the gains of the kingdom. But that is not the weapon that was given to us. We were given the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and we must wield that weapon if we are to receive our eternal reward. The third metaphor comes to us in verse 6. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. The farmer wakes up early and has to go out into the field no matter the wind or the weather. And so too must the gospel worker. The Christian ministry is not the place for a lazy person. You need to be early at your Bible. You need to be often on your knees. 
You need to be steadfast and consistent in prayer. You must be like the hardworking farmer. But if you do, generally speaking, you will enjoy the first share of the crop. Scholars seem to think that by that metaphor, Paul means both the fruit of personal character and the fruit of conversions and Christian growth. And I see no reason to disagree with that. Verse 7, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now, here's a passage that reminds us of the importance of literary context when it comes to our interpretations. The Apostle Paul says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Now, why would he do that? Why would he put these things together as he has done here? Some communicators think that the statement about David is essentially irrelevant. Paul was just waxing poetic and he got a bit wordy here. But of course, that's nonsense. Studied in the context of the letter as a whole, it is quite obvious what Paul is doing. The overarching concern of this letter is to buttress Timothy for the likely experience of suffering. Paul is writing this letter from prison, an imprisonment that led to his death. Christianity had gone from being tolerated as a sect of Judaism to being outed as a potential threat to the empire in a very short period of time. And Paul wants to be sure that Timothy is ready for this rapid change in circumstance. And so he says, remember Jesus risen from the dead. And remember also that he was the offspring of David, even the offspring of David, who ought to have been king, who ought to have had a soft upbringing somewhere in a palace, who ought to have been celebrated everywhere that he went, who ought to have reigned over a thankful and adoring nation, even Jesus, son of David, offspring of David, had to suffer before he rose from the dead and entered into glory. And if Jesus had to do that, if the offspring of David had to do that, well then, how much more will you? How much more will I? We need to be prepared. All those who follow Christ must be prepared to walk through the valley of the shadow of death before passing through the gates of the celestial city. That leads us very naturally into the trustworthy saying which Paul provides in support of that assertion. He says, starting in verse 11, the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Most of the commentators say that this was likely a line borrowed from a well-known early Christian hymn, which the apostle here endorses. The basic connection is the idea that endurance leads to reward and glory, whereas faithlessness leads to ruin and regret. If we endure, we will also reign. If we deny him, he will deny us. Now, the last line can be a bit confusing. Paul says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. At first glance, you might think Paul is contradicting what he had said in the preceding verses. Perhaps God doesn't deny us. After all, if we deny him, maybe his faithfulness will trump our faithlessness. But that isn't what the expression means. William Hendrickson explains, faithfulness on his part means carrying out his threats as well as his promises, close quote. What Paul is saying is that God is constant. He doesn't move even if we do. 
our faithlessness does not alter his nature. He is and always will be a promise-keeping God. Therefore, you want to be on the right side of that. You want to play the long game. The hymn itself was probably inspired by a saying of Jesus recorded for us in Matthew 10, 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Close quote. Jesus, of course, put great stock in the matter of endurance. He said in Matthew 10, verse 22, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Again, in Matthew 24, 13, he said, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. One gets the impression that endurance is everything. Indeed, that appears to be the overarching theme for the entire first half of this chapter. John Stott says here, looking back over the first half of this chapter, verses 1 to 13, the Apostle Paul seems to have been hammering home a single lesson. From secular analogy, soldiers, athletes, farmers, and from spiritual experience, Christ's, his own, every Christian's, he has been insisting that blessing comes through pain, fruit through toil, life through death, and glory through suffering. It is an invariable law of Christian life and service, closed quote. Timothy is to know that. And Timothy is to remind others of that. We see that in verse 14. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Timothy is to teach and command solid, true, reliable things and to avoid quarreling about words. John Calvin says here, I wish that this could be taken to heart by those who are always looking for wordy battles, searching out a quarrel in every question, and quibbling over individual words and syllables. But they are carried away by ambition, which, as I know through experience with some of them, is sometimes as fatal as a terminal illness, closed quote. One cannot help but wonder how much of the current theological infighting on Twitter and in the blogosphere is driven mostly, if not entirely, by personal ambition. Controversy is bad for the hearers, but good for the brand. It is the fastest way to make a name for yourself and to build a following. That it profits nothing and that it ruins those who hear it matters little to those who instigate it. For them, it is about positioning themselves as theological superheroes, fighting villains of their own construction. Timothy is to charge the leaders under his care to have nothing to do with such vain pursuits as these. He tells him rather, beginning at verse 15, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. As a child, I memorized 2 Timothy 2.15 in the old King James Version, which says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman who needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The Greek word translated by the King James Version as study and by the ESV as do your best is spudadzo, 
which the dictionary defines as to be bent upon, to endeavor earnestly, or to strive. And so you can see an argument for either rendering. Paul is telling Timothy to be bent upon the scriptures in earnest study, so as to present himself to God as one approved. The basis of his being approved as a workman is that he is rightly handling the word of truth. Literally, he is cutting it straight, a word borrowed from the trades. One is to imagine a group of workers building a home out of either stone or wood, regardless of the material. You don't want to be the workman who brings to the foreman a warped stud or an uneven stone. You'll be sent back to the quarry or to the saw with your head hung down in shame. You want to cut it straight so that your work can have a permanent place in the house that is being constructed. That is to be your ambition as a gospel worker. And therefore, Timothy is once again reminded to avoid irreverent babble. These warnings are so frequent that we begin to wonder if Timothy was inclined to irreverent babble. Did he have a bit of a lean towards controversy and meaningless debate? Or was it simply a very common temptation at the time? We can't be sure, but we are impressed by how often Paul feels the need to say something like this. He has just said it earlier in this chapter, in verse 14, and then, of course, he said much the same thing in the previous letter in chapter 6, verses 20 to 21. He said, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and the contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Close quote. No doubt he was thinking again of Hymenaeus and probably several others also as well. In 1 Timothy 1, 19 to 20, Paul wrote to Timothy saying, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Quote. So Paul excommunicated these two men when he was last there in Ephesus, apparently for teaching that the resurrection had already happened. George W. Knight III provides a very plausible explanation of this error. He says, their teaching apparently related the resurrection only to the inner spiritual life. It was probably associated with a false asceticism and a low view of the material world, especially of the human body, and might have resulted from an incorrect handling of Paul's word about Christians being presently raised with Christ. Quote. These men were theological adventurers. They were sloppy in their hearing and arrogant in their teaching, and they had upset the faith of many. And yet, the work of God is not ultimately threatened by the foolishness and error of such men. God's firm foundation stands, bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So here, Paul uses the imagery of a foundation, probably a stone foundation, with a set of inscriptions, one on either side. Both of these inscriptions are taken from number 16, which of course tells the story of Korah's rebellion. George W. Knight III again is helpful. He says here, As sad as the episode of Korah's rebellion was, it did not ultimately devastate the congregation of Israel. And false teaching will not devastate the church at Ephesus. The statement quoted here affirms God's ability to differentiate between true and false believers and becomes here the reason for believing that God's foundation stands firm in the present situation. Closed quote. Now, he writes that specifically in reflection upon the first of those two citations from Numbers 16, the one that says, The Lord knows those who are his, which is taken from Numbers 16.5. The second citation is taken from Numbers 16.26, where Moses tells the people 
to separate from the tents of the rebels before the judgment of God will fall, lest they be swept away in it. The people immediately move away, at which point Moses declares God's judgment. Verses 31 to 35 of Numbers 16 says, And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. Quote. Now, by citing the bookends of that story, the Apostle Paul is saying, in essence, that there have always been false teachers trying to divide the people of God. But God knows who is who. And God, in his wisdom, actually uses the ministry of false teachers to purify the church. The false follow the false, and the whole mass of them together falls into the pit and perishes. And the church remains stronger and more stable than ever. That's what Paul is saying here. He gives a further charge to Timothy, beginning in verse 20. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Household metaphors continue in this paragraph, though here the focus is on the vessels to be found inside. <laughs> there are chamber pots and salad bowls, Timothy, in a properly furnished house. Which one do you want to be? The idea being advanced here used to be referred to as consecration. To the degree that we separate from sin, we position ourselves for promotion and increased responsibility in the house of the Lord. Do you want to be promoted, Timothy? then flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord with a pure heart. Verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Here we go again, right? Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Once again, Paul warns Timothy away from foolish, ignorant controversies, knowing that they breed quarrels. The Lord's servant is not a keyboard warrior. Rather, he is kind to everyone. He is able to teach and willing to absorb a fair bit of mistreatment. He is not indifferent to error, but he is committed to correcting his opponents with gentleness, hoping for and praying for their repentance. Donald Guthrie says here, The right treatment of opponents is an urgent matter for all who hold responsible Christian positions. And the Apostle's advice to Timothy to gently instruct those who oppose is calculated to win them over rather than to antagonize them. Closed quote. That is a very high bar. That is a rather stinging admonition. Thanks be to God. 
And thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you would like to support this program, please consider leaving us a rating or a review on iTunes as it will help other people find and access these materials. If you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find our entire library of content over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes store or on Google Play. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, just go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right-hand corner. You can also contribute through the Into the Word app. We hope to connect with you again really soon right here for another episode of Into the Word.